Well, here we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And again, what's so helpful is as you try to put yourself into the situation of the original readers and then understand what the Bible was saying to them and then let God speak to us as Christians here in the 21st century. So this morning, I want you to imagine, just take a moment and think to yourself, what's your favorite type of food and maybe even your favorite restaurant? So maybe it's for those, like, hands down, I love steak or Italian food, right? So either take me to a Brazilian steakhouse or Italian food. Imagine being told you may never go to that restaurant again now that you're a Christian. Wait, you're talking to me, Paul? You're telling me, like, I can't go to my favorite outback? I think that we would struggle with that. I think that we would say, Paul's being legalistic. But what we're going to read as, as we're going through the book is there's significant challenges in the Corinthian church. And we just finished looking at an issue about singleness, but this morning we're going to begin a section of three chapters where Paul's going to deal with a very difficult issue, one that we're not dealing with today, but the principles, hands down, we're still dealing with. So we have to understand the culture back then. In, in the culture of, of Greek and Roman society, particularly among the Greeks, they had temples throughout their city. So picture these big temples in Corinth. Now, they weren't just there to go to church, right? So these temples on a regular basis would have, quote, worship times. And this is what it looked like. The priests would sacrifice a cow, and they would give a third of the portion of that, that cow, they would put it up on the altar to the god. A third of it, they would send to redners to be sold in the market, and then a third of it, they would eat at that meal. And everybody went to that. They didn't have restaurants back then. So if you were in the mood for a steak or some sort of beef, that's where you went. And it wasn't a new phenomenon. It didn't come out on Shark Tank and then it was like, this is going to spread like wildfire. They'd been doing this for a long, long time. So imagine that you grew up. I mean, that was what you did. And it was far more than going to a restaurant. It was their social event too. We all, that's where we see our neighbors. That's where we see our friends. That's where we see our family. We all meet at these temples. And during the week, we have a feast. And, and, and we dedicate some of that meat to one of our gods, and then we, we, we have our drinks and we eat together, and it was just normal, right? And then many of these Corinthians came to know Christ and were wrestling with this idea of, hmm, now I, I, I know that the, 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 the big picture is that's evil. And so while Paul was with them, he made it clear, you, you can't do that anymore. You just can't. Now, he wasn't asking them to, to just switch their, their flavor of ketchup, like you can't use Heinz anymore, you got to use... No, he was saying, stop going to these idols' temples. Now, imagine the significance of how difficult that would be to be told, don't eat out anymore, right? When, when in fact, number one, you're going to be persecuted by your family and friends. What? What? Why aren't you here anymore? What, you think you're better than us? Number two, think about the personal sacrifice. I like steak. I'm a vegetarian. Me personally, I'm a vegetarian, but secondhand. Cows eat grass, and I love to eat cows. 
So if I was told, don't eat steak anymore, that would be tough. And so apparently what happened as we try to figure out and reconstruct this is that the Corinthians had taken Paul's, quote, advice and said, thanks for your suggestion, but no, we're going to keep doing this. So the whole issue of these three chapters is that Paul is going to come right out and tell them it is wrong and sinful if you continue to eat in these idols' temples. He's not going to say, well, you know, everybody has a different opinion. He's going to tell them it's wrong and sinful. In fact, in chapter 10, he's going to tell them that's like worshiping demons. But the way that he gets there is really helpful because sometimes if you're helping your parents that are trying to raise your kids, you can just say to them, this is wrong and sinful and you're going to stop it. But there's a lot to be said in, in thinking and dialoguing and reasoning with them. So, but understand that this isn't just in the context of like, hey, Paul, what do you think about meat offering to idols temples? He had already told them, don't do it anymore. They had already come up with, we're going to do it anyway. And now he's writing a letter. Now, they weren't dumb. We're all clever when we want something, right? We, we figure out our rationale why in our case it's okay. I, was, I, was, I saw this in my grandson the other day. I was still asleep, and, and he came, they spent the night, and he came into my bedroom. He wanted me to come down and play with him. Now, he's two, and he has a little brother who's like, I don't know, six months, and he knows that I like to pick up the baby and play with him, so he's like, Pop, will you come down? You, will you come down? Come play with me. And he wasn't getting anywhere. He goes, Pop, Titus wants to see you. <laughs> I thought to myself, he's two years old, and he's already learned how to work the system, right? Like, manipulating child psychology, literally child psychology. He's like, hey, Titus wants to see you. Like, I don't think a six-month-old would be able to communicate that. But in the same way, these Corinthians had come to a, a, a rationale. They weren't just saying to Paul, you can't tell us what to do, but they had a very sound reason. They go, Paul, listen, this whole problem, you're worried about meat offered to idols, we know there's no such thing as an idol. Like, we get it. We know better. We, pardon me, but we follow the science. Right? We know what the facts are. And the reality is, Paul goes, you know, you're right. That's true. But when it comes to a lot of decisions in life, it cannot just be knowledge and facts. So he's going to say, there's other issues involved. And one of them is love. So let, let's take a look at this passage because it's really practical. And it's really interesting because I doubt that any of us are going to be tempted to eat meat offered to idols. The only place I ever thought this might happen is if you go to an Indian restaurant, because sometimes they have their little idols, and maybe some of the food was sacrificed to a god. So the first thing that we're going to learn is that Paul's going to remind us that when it comes to all moral decisions, but particularly here, knowledge alone is not enough. Like, let's just get the facts out there. Knowledge alone is not enough. And he's going to show us that in verses 1 through 6. So let's start at verse 1. He says, now, concerning things sacrificed to idols. Now, that's going to be in the broader context of coming to the temple. Okay, later on, he's going to deal with, well, can I, can I buy it from Sam's Club if they have, you know, sale? By the way, you see how expensive beef is now? So can I go get it at Sam's Club? But let's start with this. He says, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. In other words, he goes, I, I hear you. I know what some of you are saying. Hey, we know that there's no such thing as idol. He goes, I, I know and you know that. But he says, I want you to know something about knowledge. 
Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. In fact, probably be better translated, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, we have to qualify that because in and of itself, that's kind of like, are you serious? Like, just avoid getting an education, avoid learning. That's a problem with you people who go to college, stupid. You think you're so much better than everybody else. He's not denigrating knowledge. And I think it probably would be better to say something like this. Knowledge by itself has the potential to puff us up with pride. I mean, there are certain things that in and of themselves, there's a temptation to pride. Money, the Bible says, instruct wealthy people not to be arrogant. Good looks, good-looking people sometimes can look down on others. And knowledge, people who are smarter than others can, can just kind of be condescending. Do you guys know what that means? It means to talk down to people. No, I'm not kidding. That's an example, right? So, so Paul goes, listen, knowledge has the potential to, to puff up and to fill you with pride, but not love. He said, love has the potential to build people up. Now, I can picture the Corinthians going, yeah, but Paul, but, but this is basic fundamental Christianity. When we became Christians, you taught us I believe in God the Father. There's only one God, Jesus Christ, His Son. We're monotheists, and we know there's no other gods. He goes, I know you know that. Look at verse 2. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. So if the amount of your knowledge leads to pride, if Paul was speaking in South Philly terms, he goes, you don't know nothing. You, you, you you think you got it all figured, you know nothing. And that's a great reminder. In fact, one of the things that I found being in higher education is that the more that you know and learn, Dr. Plummer, the more you realize what you don't know, right? You realize, wow, I thought I was pretty smart. And then when I started reading, I started realizing there's a lot more out there, right? The more you know, the more, I, the more you realize you don't know. But the problem is it can have the reverse effect. The moment you get that degree, you're like, mm-hmm, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, I graduated magna cum laude. Now, some of us graduated old laude cum quickly because I, I, I barely made it. But there's, you can just see the temptation to be like, okay, I got, I got this. I know. So be careful because God does wire us better. There are yogi bears, right? Some of you are yogi bears. You're smarter than the average bear. You remember things. You read a lot more. My wife and I are very competitive. I'm very competitive. We play this game called Word Power in Reader's Digest, and it's to um, see who has a better vocabulary. Let's just say that I rarely win, and I don't like it. So, but at the end of the day, she doesn't degrade me and say, that's what I'm talking, that's what I do when I win, because I only win once in a while. So Paul goes, look, here's what's important, not how much you know, but then, then he takes an interesting twist. He goes, who knows you is more important than what you know. Like, what? Look at verse 3. He goes, if you think you know anything, you don't know nothing yet. But if anyone loves God, now I would have thought he would say, if anyone loves God, you know the right thing to do. But he goes, if you love God, you know what that means? You're known by him. What? What does that even mean? You're known by him. Paul uses this idea frequently, and, I, and you'll pick it up in my preaching, not because it's a hobby horse, because, but because it's in a lot of verses of the Bible, that our relationship with God is entirely by His grace 
initiated by him. We don't come to know God because we're smarter than the other kids. We come to know God because in his sovereign grace and mercy, he predestined us, he called us, he elected us. And so to be known by him is to have been invited into a relationship with him. We are believers because he first knew us. I'm not saved because I figured it out. I'm saved because I'm known by God. I'm dearly loved and chosen by God. And, and so the point here is that when, when, if you think you know anything, start with this. Why are you even a Christian? It's by God's grace. And by the way, it might be worth noting that there are quite a few people prancing around on this planet going, yeah, well, I know Jesus. And it's a little bit important to remember this. Some of them, he's going to say, I don't know you. Now, I don't tell you that to scare you, right? Because sometimes when people hear that, they're like, what if I'm not saved? Jesus once said this. He goes, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my Father. And he said, many people will say to me on Judgment Day, Lord, didn't we do miracles in your name? Like Judas, I cast out demons. And Jesus says, and then I will say to them, I never knew you. Now, before you freak out and go, what if that's me? He qualifies those people. He says, I never knew you, you who practice wickedness. In other words, you who absolutely never even thought about being obedient to me. You who absolutely have no concern for my will. You who simply said, I raised my hand at Backyard Bible Club. I dreamed I went to heaven when I was eight years old. I asked Jesus in my heart. That's not necessarily what it means to be a Christian. If you have been drawn to Christ and born again, if God has made you a new creature, there has to be a sense of a changed heart. There has to be some evidence of, of a spiritual affection for Christ and a desire to begin to grow. We don't always get it right, and there are some Christians who really make a mess of their lives, but at the very heart and soul of being a Christian is a changed heart. And so, so it's not so much that, so, so even as you're parenting, just because Billy at four years old goes, I asked Jesus in my heart, don't necessarily sell the farm and go, now I know that he knows Jesus. Pray that that, that will be evident that the Spirit of God begins to change them if they lied like it was their job since, until they were five. When they became saved, are you starting to see a sensitivity to that? So Paul goes, let me just remind you, Knowledge is not the end of itself. And we need to recognize that who we know and who knows us is most important. Now, he's going to go, so listen, I get it. I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, Paul, I should be able to go to that temple because I know there's no such thing as idols. And Paul goes, got it. I taught you this stuff. So let's look at verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know... We know there's no such thing as an idol in the world. We know that there is no God but one. That's monotheism. That's, that's a heart and soul of, of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And by the way, we, we're not the only people on this planet who are monotheists. You can be a monotheist and still be lost. Muslims are monotheists. There's only one God, and it's Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet, right? And Jewish people are monotheists. In fact, if you went to the synagogue this coming, or go to the synagogue this Friday night, the first thing they do is they stand up and say, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Akkad. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God. And Paul goes, okay, I know that. I taught you that. 
And he says, we know there's no such thing as an idol. So whatever those things, the prophets made fun of it. He goes, you bow down to a piece of wood, give me a break. Isaiah says, you carve it and half of it you, you worship and the other half you burn to cook your dinner. Hello? They have hands, but they can't see. They have ears, they can't hear. There's nothing there. It's just an idol. But then Paul says, yeah, yeah, I know that. He says, but even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, but then he says something weird. He goes, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. You're like, wait, you're contradicting yourself, Paul. You just said there is only one God. Now you just flipped around and said, there's many gods and many lords. What I think he's, he's doing here is he's going to introduce us to a card he's going to play in chapter 10. Demons. Demons. That behind idols, while it is just a piece of wood or, or a stone, that there are demons. And that these demons are referred to as gods. They're not the almighty God. In fact, the Bible refers to Satan as the, the God of this world. Now, Paul, why, why are you throwing this in here? Because he goes, you know that there's only one God and that these idols are, are nonsense. But not everyone has that same understanding, even among Christians who are struggling. So look at how he develops this. He goes, for us, there is only one God, the Father. And then he qualifies something. And you know, sometimes when we read those creeds, it's somebody like, ah, I don't know if I like this, you know. Um, reminds me of when I used to go to a liberal church. And I get that because I went to a, a church that was Protestant Methodist church. It was very liberal. We, they didn't preach the gospel. But we did recite the Apostles' Creed, right? And even though I blah, 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 Jesus Christ died, rose again, and I had no idea what it meant, it was still true, and it still established some biblical principles in my mind. So let me remind you this. In the early church, when they led people to Christ, they carefully instructed them you know what? You've heard catechism, and I'm not suggesting we, that we all should go to the Roman Catholic catechism, but, but the idea of a catechism comes from, the, from a Greek word that's used in the book of Hebrews. It says, when you first came to Christ, we gave you catechism, instructions, basic instructions. Christianity is not just feeling good about Jesus. It's knowing things. That's why we have a baptism coming up, and we don't just say, and I've been to churches, and I've been a place where they go, anybody want to get baptized? Come on down. We got, I even went once in Arizona. They said, and if you didn't bring a bathing suit, we've got one you to borrow. And I'm like, wait a minute. You're going to baptize someone without even examining and, and trying to figure out do they have any idea what they're doing? So the early church was very careful to have instruction for new believers. And some of you might want to think about that. We're trying to sort of develop more of that. And, and I want you to think that, Maybe you might want to be involved with that. So Paul gave them instructions. There's only one God, the Father, from whom are all things. That's why we say, I believe in God, the Father, maker of heaven and earth. But then it says, and we exist for him. God didn't create us for our benefit. He created us for his glory. And when you become a Christian, you realize there's one God, and I, I am here on this earth for him. And then he says, and there's only one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things. You go, wait a minute. If God is the, the source of all creation, what does that mean? Christ is the mediator. So when you read in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. 
The New Testament reminded us that when he said it, Jesus got busy. So the New Testament brings that one person of the Trinity into perspective and, 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 and ascribes to creation the mediating role of Christ. All things came into being through him, through Jesus, and without him there was nothing that came into being. Colossians 1, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So as you're learning about the Trinity, we learn there's one God only, but he exists in three equal persons. They're eternal. They're, 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 they're equal in their nature, but they're distinct in some of their roles. And so Christ is the one who is the mediator of creation, and then Christ is the one who paid for our redemption. God so loved the world, it doesn't say that he sent his Holy Spirit. So these are basic fundamental things. Jesus Christ is our creator, and we exist through him. Okay, got it. Now Paul throws the kicker. Now let's get back to the subject of idol temples. Yep, I agree with you. However, he says, when it comes to these issues, we must be sensitive to other believers who aren't there yet. Look at verse 7. He goes, however, not all men have this knowledge. Now look back at verse 1. We know all things. We have knowledge. And Paul goes, I get it. For the most part, a good number of you really have embraced this. But some of you, it hasn't really sunk in deeply yet. And you're still struggling. So within this community, what Paul's concern was is, yeah, of course you can go eat a piece of meat and, and pay no attention to that idle stuff. But he says there's other Christians who are struggling with this. And he says in verse 7, being accustomed to the idol until now, they eat food as though it were sacrifice to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. Now, this is interesting. Imagine, let's just take a God, Zeus. Imagine that you believe in all your, with all your heart that there is a Zeus. And, and for most of your young life as you're growing up, you're praising Zeus, you know. Um, Zeus is Lord. Zeus, you are amazing. Like, you, it's all about Zeus. And you've been sacrificed to him. Then you come to know Christ. And you're, and you, and you're, and you're like, it's not about Zeus, it's about Jesus. But then to go back the following week and eat there and all your life you've been sacrificing to Zeus, for some of them, they just weren't yet able to go, there is no Zeus. So what they were doing is violating their conscience. Now, that's a dangerous thing to do. Our conscience can be faulty. The Bible says our conscience can be seared. But one of the things the Bible teaches is it's a bad idea to diss your conscience. When Paul writes in Romans 14, he says, become convinced in your own mind. Happy is he, he doesn't condemn himself in what he approves. So, so whenever you're making a decision about something that's not clear, it doesn't really matter what other people tell you. What matters is how do you feel about it? What if Jesus Christ were sitting there beside you do you have some sense that if I do this, it's wrong? Because whatever it is, if you defile your conscience, if you disobey your conscience, the Bible calls that a sin, and it brings self-condemnation. And guilt is a painful emotion to live with. And so, so here's Paul's concern. Yeah, I get it. He goes, but you're going to go up to that temple, 
And he says, you have the potential of one of the weaker brothers seeing you, and he's going to sin against his conscience. Now, be careful. Notice, just because someone doesn't like what you're doing, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about someone else who thinks something is wrong, and you do it, and that could lead them to do it. Okay, we're not talking about someone who goes, oh, look at them. They wear makeup. That's a sin, right? Or look at them. They play cards. That's a sin. Or they go to movies. That, we're not talking about that. It's when people think something's wrong, and they're not sure, but you do it, and they're, they're tempted to do it. So Paul goes, okay, okay, I, I get it. Because the Corinthians had another one. They go, well, how about this, Paul? We know about that Old Testament clean and unclean food stuff. And, and we understand that when Jesus came, he pronounced all foods clean. We understand Hebrews 13, 9, food will not commend us to God. We understand the Bible says that it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by various types of food. We get it, Paul. Come on, we have knowledge. So he goes, I get it. Food will not commend us to God. In other words, you're not going to get points with God because you don't eat unclean food. And you know what? You're not going to get demerits from God if you eat certain foods. Now, you might have a heart attack, but that doesn't mean God's mad at you. He says, we're neither the worst if we don't eat, nor the better if we do eat. So they're going, come on, Paul, I got to be able to go have my steak. Number one, there is no idol. Number two, food doesn't matter to God. Paul goes, I agree. But he says, here's where we differ. Verse 10, if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he's weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? So I think at the beginning when Paul was leading them to Christ, like the Thessalonians, it says, you turn to God from idols. Most people, when they get converted out of a false religion, run for the hills from that religion. And many of them have anger. Why do they teach me these lies, right? And I don't think any of them, while Paul was with them, were like, hey, you want to go get a steak at the idol's temple? But now that Paul's gone, a number of the Corinthians are going, you know what? Who's Paul? He, don't, he can't tell me what to do. And now they're going back. And Paul goes, you know, some of your brethren, they're just walking by the idol's temple and they see you going in there. And in their mind, this is wrong, but they're hungry. And so now they're struggling. Paul says, verse 11, for three, through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whom Christ, for whose sake Christ died. Now that's, wait, what? The word there means to be destroyed. It's not just like, you hurt his feelings, you offended him. Can you imagine that it's possible for you or me as a Christian to ruin and destroy another Christian? Like, that's pretty brutal, right? Like, just, just run the bus right over them. And, and commentaries struggle about this. In fact, Gordon Fee, who I really like, says, you know, you, you've, you've cost him his eternal destiny. I'm like, what? So let me reassure you here that, that it is, th what this does not mean is that you'll cause another Christian to lose their salvation. A true born, if, if you want to know, hey, Brother Allen, do you believe in once saved, always saved? Absolutely. 
But let me qualify that. If you're elect by God, the Bible says, everyone he chose, he justifies. And if God has justified you, I promise you that you will begin to be sanctified. The Bible says, without sanctification, you won't see God. So those who have been chosen by God and who are declared righteous by faith begin to grow in grace. But the Bible says, everyone whom he's justified, he's glorified, right? As far as God's concerned, if you're one of his own, he sealed you with the Spirit. You are bought with the blood of Christ. He that began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ. That's why I love to sing, when Benjamin throws up there, he will hold me fast, not I'll hold him fast. He will hold me fast. God keeps his own. You cannot lose your salvation. But this does not mean we should be careless. This does not mean that it's not possible to be deceived. This does not mean the reason why some people don't believe in once saved, always saved, is because they know someone who was, quote, once saved, right? I know Uncle Barry was once saved because he used to preach. But now he's a transvestite atheist. So he lost it. And I go, he didn't lose it. A Christian can't lose their salvation. 1 John 2.19 says if they go out from us, they were never of us because the mark of being a believer is that they'll stay in the fold. However, what does it mean to ruin and destroy another Christian? Somehow their life has been wasted. Somehow they've been held captive by Satan. Somehow they spend their Christian life groaning instead of growing. Somehow they're going to stand before Christ ashamed, even though they're saved. The Bible says if we don't abide in Christ, we'll shrink away in shame. He's not going to say, get out of here, you're not going to heaven. But let me remind you, as I've said before, don't assume that Jesus says to every Christian, well done, right? Because if we haven't done well, he's not going to say well done. Even suicide, I don't think suicide could keep a Christian out of heaven. But I don't think if a Christian committed suicide, the first thing Jesus would say to them is, well done, right? So think about the implications of how much damage we could do to another Christian. In fact, some of the commentaries were actually saying, it's not as though the Corinthians who were still going there were wearing glasses and a mustache and hoping no one saw them. You know, maybe those of you that go to the adult beverage store, you're like, I hope none of the Baptists see me, you know, because that's, right? Apparently, what they were doing here is they were encouraging them, right? They were actually saying to these weaker brothers, listen, come on, man. There's no other gods, so you're allowed. Yeah, but it bothers me. Don't listen to Paul. It's okay. Listen, that takes it to another level. When you are actually encouraging someone to violate their conscience, but do you think the Corinthians were viewing it that way? They're like, let's go over to Alexander's and try to get him to violate their conscience. No, they meant well. They're like, come on, we know the truth. The truth is there are no idols. Stop thinking that way. There's no God. You can come and eat it, right? So be very careful not to, when someone thinks something is wrong, while you can tell them your opinion, be careful not to encourage them to violate their conscience. You have your rights. Come on, the Bible says, stand fast in your liberty. Don't do that. Let, let the Holy Spirit work in people's hearts. So Paul goes, when we do that, he goes, if you keep going to that temple, now he's going to get very pointed. When you do that, he says, 
You are sinning against that brother and you are sinning against Christ. Now that takes it to a new level. He goes, okay, let's cut to the chase here. Mark this down. From now on, every day that you go to that idol's temple, you might as well just, in the face of Jesus, go, I'm gonna sin in your face, right? I don't care that you die for me because I have my rights. That takes it to a new level. So then Paul puts out this closing principle. I wanna share this and then we'll talk about the application. The closing principle is very broad, but very helpful. And it's this, when you make ethical decisions, don't make it just on knowledge, make it on love. Don't just make it vertical, me and God know, make it horizontal, okay? There are so many things in life, folks, that are not black and white. The Bible does not say you shall not have alcohol. The Bible does not say you shall not watch movies. You shall not play cards. You shall not smoke cigarettes. There's a lot of situations that what theologians often call them are gray areas. In and of themselves, they're not wrong. But if you think they're wrong, then they are wrong. If you violate your conscience, you're sinning against Christ because you're basically saying, I don't think Jesus wants me to do this, but because he did it, I'm going to do it anyway. And then, bam, you're stained and condemned, and you've given Satan a foothold to just rake you over the coals and, and, and cause you to, to experience all kinds of sadness and sorrows. So Paul goes, here's the principle. If food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again that I might not cause my brother to stumble. So let me clarify, what is a stumbling block, okay? A stumbling block is not doing something that another Christian thinks is wrong. That's not a stumbling block. For example, there are Christians who think that it's wrong for women to wear pants, right? Yeah, the Old Testament says a woman shall not dress like a man. Number one, that's under the Mosaic law. We're not under the Mosaic law, but number two, in our culture, I've never walked up behind somebody with pants on and say, hey, buddy, you got, a, got the time? I don't even think in our culture pants are solely men's clothes. So if you decide to wear pants, ladies, and you have no problem with your conscience, just because grandmom thinks you're sinning, that's not a stumbling block, okay? A stumbling block would be if your behavior caused grandma to go get her Levi's and be like, well, maybe it is wrong, but I don't care. But maybe it's okay because they did it, okay? Because if we try to, to, to bow down to everybody who doesn't like something we do, we're going to go crazy. So the issue is, let's take rock music. When I was a new Christian, I was told if it has a beat, it's of the devil. There's no such thing as Christian rock. There's no Christian devil, is there? And so I was like, yeah, and I burn all my rock records, you know, smashed them for Jesus, and then any Christian I met, when they were listening to rock, I'd be like, he's listening to Led Zeppelin. He's not even saved, right? So there will be people who will think you're so bad for some of these gray area things. They're not the issue. It's not people who are offended and they think you're a jerk. It's whether or not you might cause them to violate their conscience. That's the issue here. So, you say, well, Tom, that's all good and well, but here's the thing. <laughs> we don't have 
idols, temples here in our culture. Now, there are, imagine, some people in other countries struggle with this, right? Because they still have this kind of stuff, Hindu temples or whatever, meals. So you say, does this have no relevance? So one of the things that I, I, you hear me say this all the time is I want to teach you how to read and apply the Bible to yourself. Pastors are supposed to feed and equip the saints, but, but not to withhold from them the ability to feed themselves and grow in grace. So whenever you're studying the Bible, as you finish, ask yourself, how should this affect my beliefs and how should it affect my behavior? Now, some passages are very clear, right? They will have commandments. Other passages are just narrative stories. They don't say at the end, therefore, do this, don't do this, don't do this. So stop and ask yourself, what would be a relevant way that this should affect my relationship with God and other Christians? So I'm going to start with this one. We've called the theme of this book, Rebuilding a Healthy Church right? That the Corinthians were a healthy church, but since Paul left, they had all kinds of problems. So I want to borrow a phrase from our president. I have no desire to comment on my view of his plan, but I want to take the phrase, build back better, okay? Let's forget about what that means and highways or whatever, right? But let that, let's take that phrase, build back better. I think what Paul's really saying here is, when it comes to these areas, building up believers is better. Not that you have a right, building our brothers is better. So, so what is that gonna look like? Well, number one, for those of you who are still watching online, if it's because of concern about the COVID, totally understood. If you're only watching online because it's more convenient and you just like being able to watch it in your jammies and pause for a cup of coffee, I think that this passage would relate to you because we need you. The body of Christ, we need one another. The Bible says do not forsake assembling together, right? We need to be together. So I get it if, it, if, it's, if it's a pandemic concern, but if it's just more comfortable, and frequently pastors are all, how are we going to get them back? And you know what I say? I say, if we lost people from this fellowship who are not going to come back to church simply because it's more comfortable, we never had them anyway, right? If your commitment level to Christ is that low that any reason why it's easier to watch it at home, and I'm not coming anymore, we never had you anywhere. I'm not sure where you are spiritually because the Bible says, do not forsake assembling one another. But listen, then, then, then the implication of that is don't just show up, sit in a seat for an hour and go home because the same passage that says, don't forsake gathering, then says this, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, right? You, listen, I love you guys. Our job is to build each other up. And the only way we can build each other up is by spending time in one another's company. Right? There's no, there's no way to do that. You can't just send people a text. So even Ephesians 4 says, let no unwholesome words go out of your mouth, but only such words that will give grace and edify others. Even this little time together for an hour and a half on Sunday morning, after the service, before the service, getting to, you know, not, I'm out, you know, I'm the first one out the door, but rather, let me get to know people. 
And then maybe something really novel, like, wonder if, do you guys want to go out to lunch sometime, or could we get together for a cup of coffee? Like, truly taking to heart that God's desire for Christian communities is to build up our brothers. And you can't do that if you don't come, and you can't do that if you just come, sit, put your money in the box, and jet out of here. So let's, let's think carefully. Um, what does that look like? What does it look like to help to build up other people? And then secondly, what does it look like to be willing to give up rights? Got to go here. How would this passage apply to vaccines and mandates and masks? You're like, he's not going to go there, is he? Brother Allen's, he's not going to touch that, sacred Kelly. We got to. You kidding me? Okay. So I want to be very careful because I hear people, I think, totally inappropriately applying this passage to vaccines and masks. Number one, I don't think this is the same issue because your view on vaccines and masks is not a moral issue. No one's violating their conscience. Oh, no, I think it's a sin to get a mask, but he told me I have to wear it, so I violated my conscience. So let, let's remove that. This is not causing someone else to stumble. This is not causing someone else to sin, for the most part. But what I do see here is that attitude matters, right? Now, you go, those dumb Corinthians, they think they can base everything on following the knowledge, <laughs> right? What do we do on this whole thing? Follow the science, right? And people on both sides are following the science. <laughs> so stupid. Don't they know, right? So I think this is very relevant. Even though this passage isn't telling us get a vaccine or wear a mask or don't do this because you're going to cause someone to stumble, there's a greater issue here, and that is an attitudinal issue. And that is it can't just be about me. And it can't just be me demeaning others' view. And it happens on both sides. Tammy and I have come up with a, we're going we're gonna to make a music video. Because you've all seen and know the song, The Cupid Shuffle, right? We sing it at, at weddings. Oh, some of you don't dance. All right, but to the left, to the left, to the right, now kick, now kick, now walk it by yourself. That's why I will never quit my day job to be an answer. But how about this? The COVID shuffle. We've got a brand new problem for pastors in America. The COVID shuffle. The COVID shuffle. Because I'm on the left, on the left, I'm on the right, on the right, and now I kick, now I kick them, I kick them. So what am I going to do? Now I'm going to watch it by myself, watch it by myself. This is real, folks. Every church in America is struggling with this issue. If we could all say, you know what, the number one most important thing is that we express an attitude of love for one another. That, that we don't simply demean someone because they don't know the science. Because they might have a different position from us. And so I think it's really important that we go, okay, when it comes to the church, something may not be morally wrong, but my attitude matters and how I treat other people matters. And there may be times that wearing a mask may be an expression of love, but I'm not going to say that across the board. If you don't wear a mask, it's because you don't love people, because that's where I think we're getting in trouble, is when people are drawing out these absolutes, because this passage is not about an opinion on medicine, right? 
It's about something that was morally wrong. Paul's going to say, don't do it. And don't cause people to violate their conscience. So, third, how does the gospel affect my new position in Christ and the decisions I make? Because, listen, one of the fundamentals of being an American in a democracy is we have certain unalienable rights, right? My rights. You have a right. You even have a right to remain silent. You have a right. And as Christians, we do have rights, right? And we do have Christian freedom. And unless the Bible forbids it, the Bible says all things are lawful. I get that. But it cannot simply be about what I have a right to. But how will this affect others? How can I bless my brothers and sisters? If you could take away one thing that you and I might pray that our love for Christ and his love for us might give me a real burden to say, I want to show love to these others. I want to build up my brothers. You cannot build up other Christians unintentionally with no commitment, no sacrifice, no thinking about it. What would that mean if when we come to church, we don't go, I didn't get much out of it, okay? Is the entire goal of church what I get out of it? People go, I didn't even get much out of the message. I didn't get much out of the worship. Well, as D.A. Carson said, that's good because we weren't worshiping you. But is the sole purpose of when I come to church what I get out of it? Or did I say some encouraging word to someone? Did I meet someone? Did I engage with someone and ask them how I could pray for them? Did I invite someone to get together during the week? Have I come to that place as a Christ follower to go, I want to consider how I can build up others in love and good deeds. If I haven't seen somebody for a while, could I pick up the phone and call them or do I just go, Pastor, guess who's not here now, right? But that we all might see this as our corporate privilege. I'm excited. I think God is building, amen? I think he really is. And he's not going to do it through just one or two talking heads from the pulpit. He's going to do it through the entire body of Christ. So, so take this charge from the Lord and let's, let's truly ask him in the days to come to say it's not about knowledge which just puffs up, but it's about love and love intends to build up. And make it your intention by the grace of God to build up others in this flock. Just ask yourself, what am I doing to build up others in this flock. If you got nothing, it's pretty simple. That's what you were doing, and this is what you ought to be doing. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that there is no God but one. You are the way, the truth, the life. You're Lord of heaven and earth. You're the judge of the living and the dead. You're our king, our savior, our master. And you're our brother. And this church is made up of your precious children. Every one of them, that's a believer, is for whom Christ died. Thank you for dying for us. If you would die for me and my brothers and sisters, help me to love them enough to be willing to die to my rights and die to my selfishness so that I might go to a deeper level of Christian maturity. Lord, the goal is not information, it's transformation. And Father, though we have all knowledge, Paul said, if we lack love, we're nothing. So fill us with a humble love 
for one another that engages in deeds of service. For in Christ Jesus, the scripture says, circumcision matters nothing and uncircumcision matters nothing, but faith which works through love. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.